0: Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Hudson Institute. Uh, also, welcome to those joining uh, online. We are uh, streaming this and recording it, and it will be available after the event for your review uh, at Hudson.org. Uh, great pleasure to have uh, the opportunity to set this uh, panel in motion, this discussion in motion, on maintaining transatlantic unity on Ukraine. Uh, we will kick it off with uh, some remarks from uh, a man who couldn't be better positioned to dis- address the issue, Anders Fober Rasmussen, former Secretary General of NATO, former prime minister of Denmark, and now founder and chairman of Rasmussen Global. Uh, he will be joined in the conversation afterward by two of America's most distinguished uh, diplomats, uh, including uh, Ambassador uh, S- Alexander Sandy Vershbow, uh, who himself was uh, ambassador at NATO, uh, as well as uh, deputy secretary general at NATO. And ambassador bill taylor whose long uh, and distinguished uh, career representing the united states includes a uh, uh, the position of ambassador in ukraine from 2006 to 2009 my colleague hannah thoburn will take care of the uh, administrative details of working through the conversation but first we're going to hear uh, from anders fogg whom i will welcome uh, and uh, and and say, come on up, or unless you prefer to deliver your remarks from there, whatever you wish. <clears throat> All right.
1: Thank you. <clears throat> thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction, and uh, thank you uh, to the Hudson Institute for organizing uh, this event, uh, which uh, takes place at a very crucial. Uh, point uh, of time because um, important decisions uh, will be uh, taken uh, on um, uh, the, the American-Russian relations and also our relations uh, with um, uh, Ukraine uh, very soon. Um, <clears throat> a month ago uh, we visited um, the contact line between what I would call the free Ukraine and the occupied uh, Ukraine. And I have to tell you, uh, to call this uh, conflict in Ukraine a frozen conflict, that is misleading. Uh, More than 10,000 people uh, have been killed uh, during this uh, conflict, 1.5 million people are internally displaced. Um, uh, 3.5 million uh, Ukrainians uh, are trapped uh, behind uh, the contact uh, line, and we have also seen villages uh, being split uh, because of uh, the contact line. And overall, uh, this, uh, the Russian aggression against Ukraine uh, is uh, threatening, the vision of a Europe uh, whole, free and uh, united, a vision we formulated uh, after uh, the end uh, of uh, the Cold War. Um, I see this as part of a very uh, clear Russian ambition um, uh, that goes far beyond uh, Ukraine. Of course, we have seen how the Russians have illegally annexed Crimea into the Russian Federation, and how they are destabilizing the situation in eastern Ukraine. But it's important to understand that this is part of a greater uh, Russian ambition to restore the Russian greatness in the territory of the former uh, Soviet uh, Union, and it's part of a Russian ambition to... Um, strengthen uh, the Russian role uh, in the world, to have a say on the global scene, to be an equal uh, with uh, the United States. So you should see the conflict in Ukraine in the same context as Transnistria in Moldova, uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia, and Nagorno-Karabakh between Azerbaijan uh, and uh, Armenia. It's a very sad situation. I mean, uh, basically, I think we we share a lot of economic and security interests uh, with uh, Russia. So the question is, how can we engage Russia more constructively? And here I think the formula would be peace through strength. And in that respect, uh, the United States has a crucial role uh, to to play because it is Putin's strong ambition to see uh, Russia as an equal uh, to um, to the United States. So U.S. leadership in finding um, a solution is important. Uh, Equally important is a firm stance from Europe, from the European uh, Union. Um, uh, For example, the EU should uh, follow the United States uh, in strengthening uh, uh, sanctions, uh, which, in my opinion, would also include uh, clearly block uh, the Nord Stream 2 uh, pipeline uh, project, which is a political project not a commercial uh, project a political project that will uh, increase eu's dependency on imported gas uh, from uh, russia and finally it's important to keep a transatlantic uh, unity Uh, the kremlin must understand that russia is confronted with a united Front. So the Kremlin must understand, as well as Washington and Brussels must understand, that the road to a more uh, constructive engagement with Russia runs through Kiev. Now, um, recently, President Putin. Uh, presented a proposal to deploy a peacekeeping mission uh, to eastern uh, Ukraine. I see it as a sign that the U.S. strategy has started uh, to work, namely a combination of strengthened sanctions and the fact that representatives of uh, the U.S. administration has floated, um, have floated the idea of delivering uh, defensive Uh, weapons uh, to uh, Ukraine, this combination has changed President Putin's calculus. And I I think President Putin now realizes that time is not on his side. He's trying to find a way out of the mess they have created in eastern uh, Ukraine. Um, So... That's why he presented this proposal to deploy a peacekeeping mission in eastern Ukraine. However, now we should be aware of the fact that it could also be a trap. And I think it is a trap. I think it's bluff. But that's called a bluff. Instead of just um, dismissing uh, Putin's proposal, we should build on it and improve it. As it has been presented, it is a non-starter because uh, President Putin's proposal would just create a UN-mandated frozen conflict in eastern uh, Ukraine. Um, We should call the bluff. We should ensure that a peacekeeping force would be Uh, would have a very robust mandate. A peacekeeping force would be a good idea if it has a robust mandate, because then a peacekeeping force could implement uh, the Minsk deal and it could, down the road, it could also help uh, Ukraine to regain its sovereignty over the eastern part of uh, the country. With a robust mandate, I mean, first of all, that the peacekeeping force must uh, have the right to control the eastern border between uh, Russia uh, and Ukraine. That way, the peacekeeping force could monitor, it could control and stop the influx of uh, Russian military equipment and personnel. And furthermore, a robust mandate would imply that the peacekeeping force uh, could protect the people, the three and a half million people living in eastern Ukraine, and not just the OSCE uh, peacekeeping or peace monitors. Um, They could also protect infrastructure in eastern uh, Ukraine. Um, And finally, I think it's important we make clear that there can be no relief of sanctions uh, until Russia fully implements its part of uh, the Minsk deal. So this way, I think we could keep up pressure uh, on uh, Russia. The second way we could do that would be to help Ukraine much more proactively than uh, done already. In that respect, we should deliver defensive military systems to Ukraine so that Ukraine will be better equipped to protect itself against aggression. During our visit to the contact line, we asked the Ukrainian troops, what do you need and to my surprise, they didn't request heavy weaponry uh, like anti-artillery, anti tank uh, weapons, etc. While uh, I think it's important still to have that on the table, I think what they answered is equally important, namely better information and communication technology. What they requested was secure communication systems, Uh, better jamming uh, systems Um, they also requested uh, night vision, goggles, etc. I think all these defensive military systems would be easy to deliver to uh, Ukraine uh, immediately. So this is the second way in which we could keep up pressure uh, on uh, Russia. And then I would mention the third instrument namely to grant Ukraine status as a major non-NATO ally. That's a possibility uh, that the US has used already um, vis-à-vis 16 other countries in the world. They have been granted this status as a major um, non-NATO ally. To be a non-NATO ally uh, does not provide you with a security guarantee ally Article 5 in the NATO treaty, but nor does it exclude that down the road we could still accept uh, Ukraine as a member of uh, NATO. But here and now, it would first and foremost send a very clear signal to Russia that the US is behind Ukraine, US will help Ukraine, and substantially it would ease military cooperation between um, Ukraine and the United States. These three instruments should be kept on the table, strengthen sanctions, delivery of uh, defensive military systems, and thirdly, Uh, special status as a major non-NATO ally. I think that's a way to get Putin to engage more constructively. On top of all that, I think we should provide more economic aid uh, to facilitate reforms uh, in uh, in, uh, Ukraine. The fact is that Ukraine has carried out more reforms during the last three years than in the previous 25 years. I underline this because very often I hear uh, in Washington as well as in European uh, capitals that the Ukrainians do not uh, move forward as fast as we could wish for when it comes to uh, reforms. But the fact is that the Ukrainians have done a lot. When it comes to anti-corruption, and we know that corruption is a major problem uh, in Ukraine, when it comes to anti-corruption, Ukraine has set up all the institutional framework uh, we could wish for when it comes to the fight against uh, corruption. And recently, President Poroshenko announced that he will, on top of all the efforts that have already been uh, done, He will propose an anti-corruption court, which has also been requested uh, by Western uh, capitals. And last year, an e-declaration system was introduced, an e-declaration system uh, that requires that all officials, from the president and down, publicly and online, annually, must declare their assets as well as their income. It's a system that is more transparent than in any, I I can say, than in any European country. And it is, I don't know the American system in all details, but I think it is at least as transparent as the American system. That will be a very efficient instrument against uh, corruption. Uh, A judicial reform has been carried out uh, so uh, we can make sure that judges in the future will not be corrupt, Um, a reform of the energy sector has been carried through, Um, a reform that also raised energy prices, which of course isn't popular in the Ukrainian population, but it, it is working efficiently the Ukrainian dependency on imported gas from Russia has declined drastically. And uh, the reform has also eradicated a lot of possibilities for corruption uh, within the energy uh, sector. Uh, But of course, uh, to raise energy prices, that isn't popular. Uh, So there's a clear risk that such reforms will fuel populism in Ukraine and we have seen opinion polls already um, that indicate how populist groups have gained ground and recently an opinion poll also indicated that more people in Ukraine now wish for prosperity than for democracy. That is, of course, a major concern. So I think we should also think strategically, as the Ukrainians are now approaching elections in 2019, how can we support the reform efforts? And how can we avoid, unintendedly maybe, but still, how can we avoid fueling uh, populism? So... I think we should all realize that Ukraine is strategically very, very important. It is a battle between um, Western values and the autocratic values we have seen spread in among other places, uh, also uh, in uh, Russia. And the most efficient weapon against autocracy would be to make sure that Ukraine will be a great success, that it will serve as an example of a flourishing democracy and a flourishing uh, market economy. That would, that would provide the West with a story that is just as strong as the story based on which we won the Cold War. Thank you. Thank you very much,
2: uh, Secretary General Rasmussen. We're going to turn now to Ambassador William Taylor uh, for for a quick response uh, to all the many issues that Secretary General Rasmussen just laid out. You covered a wide range of issues concerning Ukraine, concerning the U.S.-Ukraine relationship, as well as the role for Europe uh, in helping bring Ukraine forward. So we'll turn to Ambassador Taylor uh, and then Ambassador Vershbow before moving in to a discussion.
3: <clears throat> what he said. <laughs> uh, I can only elaborate on a couple of things that the prime minister, that the Secretary General um, has put forward. Um, one of the things let me just start off with, so uh, we're all NATO people here. It turns out I was at a lower level, higher level, also higher level. Um, I was uh, a, an infantry captain um, uh, in uh, uh, in, East, in West Germany, looking at East Germany at the time. And then I was at, a little bit later. I was uh, uh, working for Sandy uh, at U.S. NATO. Um, when I got the U.S.-NATO in 1987, we were still looking at the Soviet divisions that were poised to come across. So uh, and now it's different. But there are similarities, Prime Minister, as you've just described. Um, looking at the situation right now, let me just reinforce um, two of the things that, that you said. One, I agree that the Kremlin is disappointed in, in their investment, disappointed in their actions, disappointed in what they're not getting out of their intervention in Donbas. Um, uh, they probably expected different results in political elections in Europe. They probably expected a better treatment. Uh, probably, probably ex- the Russians probably expected less sanctions from this new administration here. Disappointed on both counts. Um, they probably expected uh, a better reception in, uh, in Ukraine. Ambassador Charlie is here, at, uh, can describe uh, uh, in, in great detail the, the u- 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 unity, the united Ukraine that we now have. In response to an invasion of, of their country, um, annexation and invasion of their country. It's a war exactly as you said. Uh, so they're disappointed. They and I think they are looking for a way out. There are a couple of other indications that they're looking for a way out. Um, in several of the discussions internationally uh, with Russians and Ukrainians and French and Germans and other Europeans, the Russians are now quietly and somewhat flexibly looking for compromises, um, which six months ago you didn't see in these discussions. Um, Now they're, and even in print, some of their senior uh, thinkers and writers are putting papers out saying, you know, there may be some compromises on how to implement Minsk. Um, So I I think that that is an indication that another thing, Prime Minister, that you mentioned, uh, Kurt Volker, the United States, is now engaged in this thing. And Ambassador Volker is now our uh, representative, uh, not a special envoy, of course, He is a representative uh, uh, of the United States in these discussions. Uh, and Kurt Volker has been pretty vocal about his views on the Ukraine-Russia conflict. He has been very explicit about defensive lethal weapons for the Ukrainians. Um, before he was appointed um, and the Russians haven't objected at all indeed they have embraced ambassador Volker um, another just another indication that uh, that makes your point that I think the Kremlin may be looking for a way out so we should keep the pressure up exactly as you said and the sanctions um, the continued military support um, the, the the way that we've supported Ukraine both uh, diplomatically and economically, that all, all needs to continue um, exactly as you said. So the U.S. Then I would in your you've got kind of three. I will have three short uh, proposals, recommendations for U.S. policy as well. One is focus on on uh, Donbas and Crimea. Um, <coughs> keep in mind that uh, the Crimea is Ukrainian. Um, just recall that, uh, that the Soviets tried to <laughs> take over the Baltics, did take over the Baltics uh, in World War II. Uh, we never recognized it, and we shouldn't recognize the, the, uh, the Russians in Crimea either. The Baltics, as of now, are proud members of both NATO and the EU. Uh, this can happen, again. so Ukraine will come back. Uh, Crimea will come back to, to Ukraine. Um, uh, we should also, exactly as you say, we ought to explore this idea of peacekeepers not in the way that the Kremlin <coughs> has put out, but in the way that you mm-hmm. described, that is across all of Donbas, including the border. They should take over the border, uh, the, the peacekeepers. Um, the other thing we ought to think about, I believe, uh, is some kind of an interim <coughs> administration for Donbas um, to resettle the IDPs that you talked about, um, to, to run the courts and the police uh, in, the, in the time when, when you it goes back to Ukrainian sovereignty and importantly, to prepare for elections. Um, The elections in Donbas, just like the elections around the rest of Ukraine, ought to be under Ukrainian law, um, ought to be run by Ukrainians, but they're not going to be run by the people who are in Donbas right now. Uh, So there has to be some kind of an interim administration that we ought to start thinking about. And the UN may have a role, the OSCE may have a role, um, other international organizations may have a role, but that's something that that we ought to to give some thought to. That's number one, the focus on Donbas um, and Crimea. Um, number two, the principles that underlay the, the world order, Prime Minister, that you mentioned, um, on sovereignty and inviolability of borders, uh, on peaceful resolution disputes, those are all there in the Helsinki document. Those are all, and, and the Russians and the Soviets before them had signed up to these. We know that the Russians have not lived up to them. So the Ukrainians are well within their rights to say, why should we sign up again when the Russians have violated those? And that's a very legitimate question. So it ought to be something, some discussion that looks at Helsinki, but Helsinki Plus, Helsinki principles in addition to some guarantee to the Ukrainians that, that their sovereignty will be respected, that their security will be respected. So the mention of major non-NATO ally status as an example is, is some of the might be a plus, the Helsinki plus on, on that kind of thing, to give Ukraine some, some assurance. Um, but some discussion of where Ukraine fits and where Russia fits in a, in a new Europe. Um, and that discussion we may want, may want to begin. Last thing would be uh, some uh, confidence-building measures. Um, you mentioned that it does make sense that there are some there are some things that we could do together. Um, uh, one is we should work together to rebuild Donbas, um the international community. But the Russians and Ukrainians that that's a joint effort we, that we could do. There are some. Arms, there's some arms control. There's some military-to-military confidence-building measures, or risk-reduction measures, or even discussions of cyber. There's some things that we may want to have a conversation with the Russians about, with the Ukrainians and with other, the rest of, of Europe. But there are some things that would build confidence uh, uh, along these lines. Um, uh, and so those three things to implement the pressure that you talked about, Prime Minister, I, I would certainly agree. So Anna, back to
4: you.
2: Thank you very much, Ambassador Taylor. MR. Okay.
4: it's tough going uh, third on the panel when you uh, agree with just about everything that's been said by the, uh, the other speakers. But uh, I still uh, want to emphasize, first of all, that it's very important we're having this uh, conversation, because in the last few months, the, the focus of the debate in this country on Russia has focused mostly on the election interference, disinformation and propaganda, or mm-hmm. Syria and competition in the Middle East. But for me, what the Russians did in uh, Ukraine is really the original sin. And it's still the greatest threat because uh, it's not only Ukraine's independence and its existence as a, as a uh, democratic state that's on the line, but of course the whole international order based on the rule of law. So uh, for that reason, I'm very pleased that the Trump administration, despite some early indications to the contrary, that it might uh, make, make – uh, try to pursue a reset with Russia at the expense of Ukraine, has in fact come up with a reasonably coherent strategy which uh, one hopes can be applied more broadly. Uh, But at least on uh, the crisis in Ukraine, uh, they've developed a good strategy, and uh, they've appointed a very capable diplomat, Kurt Volker, to help carry it out. But of course, this strategy will only really work if we uh, remain strong, we remain united with our allies. That's absolutely indispensable. And uh, of course, we have to adhere firmly to our principles. So we should, as as Bill said, uh, refuse to recognize the illegal annexation. And demand that it be returned to Ukraine, uh, however long that takes. Hopefully, it'll be less than 40 years, as was the case with uh, the Baltic states. And in the case of the Donbass, it means maintaining and, if necessary, increasing the pressure on Russia uh, until they agree to uh, restore Ukrainian sovereignty in full, as uh, called for in the Minsk agreements. I agree. I'm a little more cautious about it, but I do see a glimmer of hope in uh, recent Russian moves. Uh, that they may be looking for a way out of the Donbass. Uh, clearly, uh, the Crimean annexation has been a winner for Putin in domestic terms, but uh, his plans for a second secessionist rump state in southern Ukraine, the so called Novo Russia project, uh, did not play out as, uh, as intended. He clearly miscalculated or he was uh, misinformed about the attraction towards Russia that uh, supposedly existed uh, in, uh, among. Russian speakers in uh, the southern parts of Ukraine. And he underestimated the degree to which most Ukrainians, uh, whatever their language, and whatever their ethnicity, uh, the the degree to which they support Ukraine's independence and uh, aspire to a European future. Uh, And I think he also underestimated the Ukrainian Armed Forces' ability to kind of get their act together quickly after the shock of the uh, aggression and take a lot of their territory back until Russia was forced to uh, introduce its uh, its regular forces at uh, Ilovaisk, And so now Putin can see that after three years of low-level conflict and uh, and occupation, uh, Ukrainian resolve and Ukrainian national identity are, if anything, even stronger than they were uh, in 2014. And at the same time, Putin hasn't managed to derail the reform process significantly uh, or implementation of uh, the EU association agreement. And of course, uh, particularly with the passage of the sanctions bill, he now knows that he's not going to get sanctions relief, at least from the US, uh, for free. And uh, I think he's found that transatlantic unity is much harder to crack uh, than he may have imagined. So uh, as Anders said, our strategy is beginning to work. And uh, Putin's peacekeeping proposal, while it may be uh, unacceptable on its uh, its terms, uh, could indicate that he's trying to find a way out he may not make a real decision on this. He may be just be testing and probing for a while. Uh, he may not make the decision until after the elections in March, but that's not so far off. Of course, even then, it's not clear whether Putin will opt for uh, full restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty, uh, or whether he might try to opt for a Transnistria solution. In other words, uh, freezing the conflict for real, ending the violence, but not agreeing to terms that would give Donbas back to uh, Ukraine. So. Our challenge is to, to convince them to choose uh, the, the first path, full Minsk, and not uh, the frozen conflict route. And we should indeed, as uh, my colleagues have said, uh, test him in the negotiations in terms of putting forward the idea of a very robust uh, UN peacekeeping uh, mission, which should clearly have as its declared goal the implementation of the Minsk agreements and full restoration of Ukrainian uh, territorial integrity. It cannot just be a limited mission to protect the OSCE monitors. Uh, I agree with what's already been said about the, you know, access through the entire occupied territories, access to the border, which is absolutely in- indispensable, uh, so that not only the weapons can't come back in, but the little green men who have to depart, along with all the volunteers and the vacationers who are fighting on the <laughs> Russian side, uh, they have to leave and not be allowed to come back in either. I agree with Bill that, uh, if possible, this may be very ambitious, but I uh, adding to a peacekeeping force an international interim administration, which the UN has experience with. They, they, they did this, for example, in, uh, in the former Yugoslavia, up in uh, eastern Slavonia. Uh, that may be uh, essential to uh, get the separatist authorities, the Ill- illegitimate separatist authorities out of, out of the picture as quickly as possible and put in a, a neutral, internationally sponsored Uh, administration to maintain law and order, oversee return of refugees, uh, reestablish functioning governance in the occupied territories. (coughs) Uh, So uh, one question that people often ask, well, why would Putin want to do all this? How could he portray this as a success for him? And, uh, And some of the things we're proposing aren't in Minsk, although without introducing implementation mechanisms, you'll never achieve the the goals set forth by Minsk. Uh, And and the Russians so far keep saying it has to be, literally something that's in Minsk or they're they're skeptical, Uh, but we have to push them on that because uh, Minsk defines an end state but doesn't define how to get there. But certainly some nationalists will will accuse Putin of betraying the cause, betraying those valiant uh, Russian nationalists in, in the Donbas. Uh, and that he was yielding to Western pressure. Uh, But, of course, Putin controls the media space and the narrative in Russia. And if he did decide that he needed a way out, he could portray the peacekeeping force uh, and the international administration as a validation of his claims that uh, the Russian speakers in the Donbass were at risk and that they needed international protection during a transition period. And, of course, he could point to Kiev's fulfillment of the political aspects of Minsk, which they would have to deliver on once – Uh, a serious process of ending the violence once and for all, removing the heavy weapons, and in short, fulfilling the security aspects of this had been achieved. As I said, none of this is going to happen without further efforts to not only maintain but probably increase the pressure on Putin to negotiate. On sanctions, uh, it's really important that the administration uh, get moving. Uh, They seem to be a little bit uh, disorganized on the on the uh, fulfillment of the uh, requirements of the sanctions bill, but they need to kind of take some decisions on how they're going to make use of the additional authorities in the uh, sanctions bill. And I think the most important thing they should do is promptly uh, submit the report that's required by the legislation on Russian oligarchs uh, close to the Putin regime. Well, it's not clear from the legislation what this list would be used for, uh, it could serve as the basis for additional targeted financial sanctions on the main cronies uh, on whom Putin depends for his political support, and uh, at least many of whom are directly or indirectly complicit in the ongoing aggression and occupation of uh, Ukraine. So the theory, at least, is if the oligarchs who make up Putin's political base uh, see that their access to the international financial system and their ability to travel in the West is going to be increasingly in jeopardy, uh, they could increase the pressure from within on Putin. Uh, to make a deal in the Donbas. On uh, military pressure, uh, I agree we need to uh, also follow through on the uh, on the public h- signals and hints that we're going to expand uh, defensive weapons assistance to Ukraine. Uh, well, I think, as uh, Anders said, they may be mainly interested in the short term in uh, in the communications gear, maybe some additional counter-battery radars and armored vehicles. Uh, we have to be prepared to uh, – provide even more substantial capabilities, such as anti-tank weapons, if Russia doesn't de-escalate and we need to uh, show them that the the costs of uh, maintaining the status quo are going to continue to rise for Russia. And of course, this is all about deterrence. This is not about giving the Ukrainians sort of the the idea that they can fight their way to victory, uh, but uh, by raising the cost to the Russians and reducing the vulnerabilities of the Ukrainian forces, uh, this can further increase the pressure on Putin to – to make a deal. Uh, So will this all work? It may be necessary but not sufficient. Uh, In the final analysis, as as Anders said, as as he closed, the best leverage of all is uh, uh, helping Ukraine achieve its ambitions to become a prosperous, democratic, well-run state that has conquered corruption, which is, I think, the biggest risk, and uh, establishes the rule of law, and can move Decisively westward, uh, and c- consistent with the ambitions of the Ukrainian people, so helping Ukraine succeed on its on its path to to, to Europe is probably the best answer to Putin's effort to redivide Europe, and uh, also maybe the most effective way to foster democratic change in Russia itself. And that's of course why Putin is so worried about the success of Ukraine. But we have to ensure that success all the more so.
2: My well, thanks, gentlemen. It seems that you are all in violent agreement yes, with indeed. one another. So it's my job to try and tease out some of the differences that you may have and try and jump a little bit into to this 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 lake, this ocean of, of problems that we have surrounding the question of Ukraine. And the first one I want to get to is to talk about exactly what you ended with, Ambassador Vershpau. this pre- question of pressure on Russia. Uh, you've all mentioned that there, there's a new set of sanctions that the US Congress has passed and that the Obama administration is now late in, in actually delivering on. And you know the, the title of this discussion is about maintaining transatlantic unity on Ukraine. And there was a lot of questions when Congress passed this set of sanctions on Ukraine, whether or not this was actually destroying the unity that the US and our European partners had built up in having a full set of equal sanctions. And the US now has done an, one step more than our European colleagues have done. And one of the things I think we heard here in the US was that our European friends were not necessarily happy about it. They, they wanted to not, you know, they, they, they didn't want to be as rough, they didn't want to be as harsh, and they wanted to do things in conjunction. So did those sanctions, did they, did they hurt transatlantic relations on the question of Ukraine? Is Europe behind where, where the US is? Or is the U.S. jumping out too far ahead? We'll start with you.
1: Um, I think the EU should follow suit and strengthen sanctions, at least not criticize uh, the United States. Very often you hear the argument uh, in Europe that Europe will suffer more economically from sanctions than the United States because of the trade (coughs) uh, patterns. But I think it's important to understand that uh, those European countries voicing that issue are exactly the same European countries that suffer the least from um, sanctions, like Italy, like Greece. They they are almost not affected uh, by the sanctions, while those countries that are affected the most, the Baltic states, Eastern European uh, allies. They are arguing that we should follow the United States, even strengthen uh, our sanctions. Well, there was one specific point that was highlighted, and that was uh, the point uh, concerning energy pipelines, not least uh, Nord Stream 2 is here in focus. I saw a joint statement from the Austrian and Germans uh, on this and um, I strongly regret uh, that statement. Um, Basically, I have to tell you, I'm against Nord Stream 2. I hope it can be stopped one way or the other. There's no commercial background for uh, Nord Stream 2. It's a purely political project it would increase uh, EU dependency on imported Russian gas, and I think in the current environment of sanctions, it would be absurd to allow that project to proceed. Well, the German government will, of course, be instrumental in that case. Uh, Let's see what comes out of the government coalition negotiations. Right now, the case is handled by the, the EU Commission. Um, Denmark uh, can uh, say no uh, to passing Danish territorial waters, but then they can just move the pipeline into international waters. So Denmark cannot, Denmark can say no and Denmark will say no, I have no doubt. But Denmark cannot block the project. So I think we need either an EU decision or a German decision. Um, But apart from that single point, uh, I I don't see any significant European resistance when it comes to uh, sanctions. Uh, Well, you have a discussion, but until now we have kept the transatlantic unity, and I think that will also be the case in the future.
2: So I turn to our ambassadorial counterparts. (laughs) these sanctions that have been passed by congress they will most likely be implemented do they help or hurt any efforts that we might have to get russia to the negotiating table do they help or hurt kurt volker in the job that he's been assigned to do
4: uh, i think they ultimately help and of course we have to take a graduated approach depending on whether the russians are responding in a constructive way or not uh, i think that U.S. and, and Europe, under, at least under the previous U.S. administration, had worked out contingency plans for additional tranches of sanctions that could you know, up the ante in terms of uh, tar- the targeted individuals who were sanctioned or the sectoral sanctions. Uh, so I would hope, as Anders just said, that you know, Europe will be open-minded, as, using sanctions as they have been effective so far, to continue to kind of achieve our larger political goals. What complicates the debate is that the sanctions bill includes sanctions that are specifically related to Ukraine. But then there's a whole series of sanctions, uh, both in force now and that they're recommending we uh, impose later, that are related to the interference in the election and broader human rights abuses by Russia. So it's a melange of different issues. And we need to keep the distinctions uh, clear, uh, both to ensure unity with the Europeans, who are focusing mainly on Ukraine sanctions, but also uh, in the situation where Kurt Volker succeeds and we uh, are in a position to lift the Mm -hmm. sanctions because the Russians have delivered on Minsk, that uh, we can still maintain a coherent approach and get the Congress to lift the right, the ones that are related to Ukraine, but leave in force the ones that are related to the election interference. Uh, So it's, it's it's a tricky and complicated business, but I think that on the Ukraine sanctions, we've been able to work it out with the Europeans. And the legislation was improved after all the complaints Overdrawn as they may have been, uh, to put in the the requirement for the administration to coordinate with allies, and the the, the one related to pipelines was discretionary. Uh, I too would hope that Nord Stream two will uh, will uh, die a dignified death because it's not a, a commercial but a political project. Uh, and the U.S. should focus on, on you know, the strategic case and not mix this up also with the promotion of LNG exports, which. Um, those, those should be uh, also pursued on a Russia. purely market basis
2: well and that brings up the question you know if ambassador Taylor these sanctions do help our our, our goal in, in achieving some kind of agreement with the Russians does the Trump government sort of dragging its feet on actually implementing him does that hurt our position vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine right now does that that slowness, impede us in any way.
3: So the sanctions are in place right now, and they are having an effect, um, and indeed, as the prime minister said, uh, they're having an effect such that the Russians are starting to reconsider whether or not they really want to be in Dallas. So that's the current level. Yeah. Um, You're right. um, The sanctions law allows, authorizes additional sanctions, and I I can say, having just talked this morning with some people in the State Department, that they're working on these. (laughs) You know, they're working not as fast as we would like. Um, leave been <laughs> all leave has been cancelled. All leave has been cancelled. Working at nights—that's right. Uh, uh, but but that—that's coming. I am confident that, that that's coming. It'll be—it a, a, won't be all at once, and it'll be kind of step by step. But they're, but they're, I'm confident that the people will take there. your word for it. You, you take—I'm taking their word for it, and, and you, can, you can do that. Um, also on the on Nord Stream. Um, I think the Secretary General is exactly right. That is, Germans are gonna have a big say, but I also have the sense, and people in this room may have a better sense, um, that the very top of the German government would agree with you. Um, There are people below the top of the German government that may, and now they've had their election, there may be a little more, as you say, there's some still coalition building to be done, um, which complicates a little bit, but I think she understands exactly what you said. uh, so I, I would, and the last thing I would say on our sanctions is uh, that we can work with the Congress. I mean, the Congress is very, very supportive of Ukraine against Russia, and and if Kurt Volker um, uh, and all of his bosses, uh, together with a lot of people represented here and in other parts of the city, uh, make the case that yes, he does need to be able to dial it a little bit, uh, my bet is the Congress will go along.
2: So let's move now to the question of moving forward on the conflict, trying to solve this, and, and, and really get into negotiations. Whether that's Minsk II or whether that is, um, you know, any other mechanism that is set up, you know, I think a lot of people seem have seemed very ready and eager to dismiss any kind of proposal that comes from the Kremlin, uh, because we're inherently suspicious, I think, of some of. The, the ideas and proposals that Moscow has put forward before. So what is different about these proposals that you, you all were mentioning? Um, Secretary General Rasmussen, you mentioned a couple of these, these outreaches, this uh, suggestion about having UN peacekeepers on the contact line. Why should we take this one any differently than we have some of the other Russian proposals in the past? Is there anything different? And what are you seeing that makes you really think that there might be room for movement?
1: There are good reasons to be inherently suspicious about uh, Russian proposals. Uh, And uh, I met uh, President Putin on several occasions. uh, So I think I know something about his tactics. Um, But the reason why uh, we should take this proposal and build on it and improve it is that two years ago president Poroshenko suggested to deploy a peacekeeping mission and he did that for good reasons because i don't see any other possibility to move forward towards full restoration of ukrainian sovereignty over its own territory so that's why Uh, Furthermore, I think, as I indicated, that the Putin proposal is a result of our pressure. Uh, So maybe I'm too optimistic, as uh, Sandy said, but uh, I think we should test it at least. So that's why. I, I think this is different. It is a different situation right now.
2: Gentlemen, agree, disagree?
1: Absolutely. I mean, don't trust, but verify. <laughs>
4: uh, see whether there's any, any there there. I, mean, I think what's significant about the p- proposal is that it does agree to some additional mechanism, a UN mechanism, which is not in the Minsk agreements as such. So it kind of breaks the taboo that the Russians have tried to establish that you can't touch the Minsk uh, package of documents. Uh, But at the same time, it's a cynical maneuver in in terms of its substance, because it would uh, de facto freeze the conflict, turn the uh, line of contact into a a border if if you implemented it as written. So uh, we have to test it and push the envelope. Uh, uh, I, I, like Bill, am intrigued by the fact that Russian academics, who clearly have been agitating for some years on this subject, recognizing how this is the whole crisis in Ukraine is turning Russia into a kind of a pariah state, and they want to break out of that isolation. They're putting forward uh, academic papers that uh, show the way forward uh, Andrei Kortunov wrote the best one which actually would provide a lot of the things we 're talking about and implement Minsk Alexei Arbatov on the other hand I respect his work on other subjects his formula would be for a frozen conflict he would just end the violence but but not uh, hand the territory back to, uh, to Russia but at least there's a debate going on in Russia and we now have to only test the Russians at the bargaining table, but try to play in the Russian debate as much as we can.
2: Ambassador Taylor, I want to ask you about um, something that the Secretary General said in his speech about the possibility of Ukraine turning into something like South Ossetia, Transnistria, Abkhazia, any of the other smaller frozen conflicts. But, you know, one thing I hear a lot from Ukrainians is that they, they worry about being put in that same category. And they worry that because Donbas and Crimea are so much bigger than you know, the 2,000 Russian troops left in Transnistria, that th- perhaps the true geopolitical significance of what's going on in Ukraine <clears throat> is not necessarily noticed. So should we keep Ukraine in that category, or is it something bigger? And do we need to see it as something a little bit different?
3: So we do see it differently. We do see it differently already. So let's remember what the Western response was to South Ossetia and Abkhazia. We didn't do very much. We put some sanctions on. We didn't keep them on very much. We said some things at the time. We did we then We dropped it. <laughs> we started to talk about a reset. <laughs> uh, Mike McFaul is, regrets that, I'm sure. Um, uh, so, so what was Putin to think? He said, well, he took over some parts of Georgia, and they didn't do very much. So why didn't he try it again? Well, we've done differently this time. We've done. We've talked about the sanctions that we put on. We've talked about the support we've given to Ukraine. Uh, we've talked about the pain that he is now feeling. He's being excluded from places he wants to be. Um, his his friends, his cronies, can't travel like they wanted to. Their kids don't get to go to school in London anymore. So they're feeling the pain. And there are indications that he would, I you know, a little more optimistic than uh, that. He's looking for a way out. Um, and I think it's because we're not treating Ukraine the way we treated these, fir- these previous frozen conflicts.
2: You would agree?
1: Yes, I fully agree. Uh, really uh, it is important to understand uh, the Russian way of uh, thinking. We shouldn't underestimate how humiliated the Russians feel uh, after what happened uh, in the 90s, uh, the collapse of Soviet Union, uh, the loss of land. the the economic and political chaos under president uh, Yeltsin then uh, they elected President Putin and he restored law and order Uh, and um, uh, he speaks to the Russian soul I would say uh, by his nationalistic uh, rhetoric but Now he realizes that uh, the Rust Belt in eastern Ukraine is quite a mouthful. So uh, if if he really wanted to take it, he could do it. Let's face it. But he doesn't want that, because that would be economically (coughs) too burdensome uh, for uh, Moscow to do it. And he can achieve his goal. Uh, with less than that, namely by uh, keeping a conflict uh, simmering. Uh, And I fully agree we we learned lessons uh, from the Georgia experience, and this is why we reacted much more forcefully this time.
2: So, Ambassador Vershbow, one of the proposals uh, that the Secretary General mentioned in his speech was about giving Ukraine major non-NATO, or MMNA, Uh, ally status. If we do that, and we already have some some nascent peace uh, or steps towards peace from the Russians, would granting MNNA status jeopardize peacekeeping missions? Would it move the Russians a little bit further back on where they, they have come somewhat forward? Or would we not see much of a response at all? Because NATO seems to be something that has really um, proven itself as a, as a kind of bugbear for the mm-hmm.
4: Russians. Yeah, well, remember, we were talking about major non NATO ally, ally <laughs> status, which is a status enjoyed by 16 other countries, none of them in Europe. Uh, it includes uh, Korea, Japan, Tunisia, Afghanistan. There's a lot of different countries r- that r- about But it.
2: remember, it, it, after 2008, at the, the mm-hmm. NATO summit in Bucharest, Romania, when a map, a, a membership action plan, was being talked about for some of these countries. The next thing we got was the invasion of Georgia.
4: Well, what we got out of the Bucharest summit, uh, as Anders remembers firsthand, was uh, a statement that Ukraine and Georgia will be members of NATO. Uh, Of course, Ukraine took itself off the membership track under Yanukovych and hasn't put itself back on officially. Although it's about to, I think, (laughs) Ambassador Jolly. But so that, that, that I think, was was a more significant issue of, of Dispute, shall we say, with the Russians. I don't think MNNA status would have a huge impact on Russian perceptions. I think it, they'll be more interested in, in calculating uh, the consequences of uh, of the decision we hope happens soon to provide more defensive weapons, and particularly if it includes some lethal systems, that's that's concrete military support. MNNA status primarily gives uh, a country uh, easier access to. Uh, Foreign military financing and uh, ac- access to U.S. defense assistance, to certain kinds of specialized training that are not normally offered to uh, every country in the world. Uh, so it would provide some concrete benefits, but it would also have a symbolic uh, sense, sort of s- a symbolic signal of commitment uh, to a kind of a long-term security partnership with Ukraine. Now, some in Ukraine, uh, I've heard say, "Well, it says non-NATO. We don't want anything that says non-NATO." Our ultimate uh, destiny is yeah. to be in NATO, uh, but it it doesn't set any any kind of, kind of change of course for Ukraine. It uh, doesn't have a security guarantee on the one hand, but it doesn't prejudge a country's uh, eventual uh, eligibility for NATO membership. That's the, that's a separate matter.
2: Secretary General Rasmussen, the, <coughs> the question here in the United States, again, as you mentioned in your speech, about giving arms to Ukraine is is heating up again. And I think one of the things that's not necessarily talked about here is when we say lethal weaponry, what exactly does that mean? Are we talking about pistols? Are we talking about um, Javelin anti-tank missiles? Are we talking about night vision goggles? Or are we talking about radar that help Ukrainians see incoming mortar fire? What impact do you think an American decision to give some kind of weaponry, somewhere in that range that I just just discussed. How would your European counterparts react to that decision? Would we get a unified European response of of positivity or negativity, or would you see a kind of split where Baltic nations and Poland, for example, might be uh, really, really in favor of such a thing, whereas nations further to the west or to the south, Italy, Spain, France, might not be uh, so happy about the, the situation. If you're looking forward, what, what does uh, that relationship start to look like?
1: Yeah. Uh, first, uh, on, on your question, which kinds of uh, defensive weaponry? I think all the things you, you mentioned should be on the table, uh, of course. Uh, heavy weapons as well as uh, more sophisticated information and communication t- uh, technology. So all of it should be on, on the table. Um, how would the Europeans react if uh, the U.S. were to take such uh, a decision? Well, honestly, I think there might be different degrees of enthusiasm, let's put it that way, but you, will, you wouldn't uh, hear any public uh, disagreement. <coughs> I think that's the case. Um, basically, it is also a national decision. Uh, it's, not NATO, it's not NATO that decides uh, who, uh, which weapons you would uh, deliver, because NATO does not possess weapons, as a point of view. It is a national possession. And that's also why it's a national decision. So if the US takes that decision, the US takes a leadership and will be followed by certain European allies. But as uh, others will just be passively uh, silent, uh, I would say. Uh, But basically, only the US has the capacity to deliver the weapons we're speaking about, because What the the Ukrainians are requesting are uh, assets that only or mainly the U.S. possesses.
2: When you say some nations would follow the U.S., do you mean they would follow the U.S. in words and verbal support, or would they also provide some kind of token? Um, material. Uh, I believe the Lithuanians have already done something similar exactly. and been giving yeah. some equipment to the Ukrainians. Would you see, do you, would we expect to see a sort of wave of that as well?
1: Yeah. It would be both. It would be verbal support from some countries, and other countries would take it as an opening uh, through which they could also deliver uh, weapons. Mm-hmm. But let's be honest about it, that would be very modest, but still they would support uh, the u.s uh, decision to deliver weapons let me just add one thing in this case i think a consistent messaging from this capital is of utmost importance and uh, when we meet members of the u.s congress there is a bipartisan support for delivering defensive weapons but it gives conf- confusing measuring when this is not implemented by the administration and it has not been implemented yet Um, both as regards delivery of defensive weapons and also strengthening Mm -hmm. of sanctions and we know that Putin will consider such confusing measuring a a weakness that he can exploit so I would urge uh, Congress and the administration uh, to send consistent, unified messages on both sanctions and weapons.
3: Honor, Please. Just one other point
1: on uh, on the weapons question. Um, it,
3: there are ways to do this. Um, you, we could make a big announcement, big send-off and arrival and training and... Or we could do it quietly. Um, And the people who need to know would know. Um,
2: Can we do it through a proxy?
3: There are lots of ways to do it. The point is we should think about how how to do this. And the question is big
4: explicit or not so big explicit. I think the main audience being Russia, will will know and should know. They uh, will and they should. <laughs> uh, and there will be either allies. Way, either way. And there will be allies, back to your original question, that there will be some who wring their hands and say, oh, we shouldn't do anything that provokes Russia. But you could argue that weakness provokes Russia. I mean, they been, haven't been have been provoked by the Ukrainians for the last three years. But they continue to launch artillery and rockets every day. And they've taken a lot of uh, Ukrainian lives. So, uh, so you know, Ukraine does deserve the right to defend itself. And the lethal, non-lethal distinction is a bit uh, artificial. I mean, lethal, I guess, is literally anything that goes bang. But uh, one could argue that the counter-battery radars, which the Obama administration did provide, and I think which the administration may do more of, uh, enable the Ukrainians with their own firing mechanisms to take out an artillery piece they're shooting at them. So it's definitely defensive. The radar isn't lethal, but it gives the Ukrainians a much better ability to, to defend themselves.
2: So if we do arm Ukraine in any way, what kind of response could we or should we expect from the Russians? I'll start with you. Uh,
4: lots of rhetorical attacks and expressions of outrage. Uh, and they may made some you know, military maneuvers you know, to show their discontent. But I don't think it's going to fundamentally alter the this, this course of events on the ground. I think they recognize, as we've been saying, that they're Position is becoming weaker with the passage of time. And the effort to destabilize and derail Ukrainian reforms and even bring down the regime through the uh, occupation of the Donbass hasn't played out as they would wish. Uh, So um, I would see them measuring this as a a sign of greater U.S. commitment and resolve and, and giving them incentive to negotiate.
2: Ambassador Taylor, would we potentially see Russian retaliation? Uh, in in a different way, say by, their choosing to, to arm uh, some rebels in Afghanistan or pushing harder. They're in already Venezuela.
3: arming Afghanistan Taliban. True. You know, so th- that's that's not a threat they can make. Um, and again, if we are not if, if we do this quietly, uh, it's up to them to decide. They don't have to respond. Um, they don't have to, They can identify it if they want if we do this quietly or not. Um, they didn't immediately identify the Turks as being the ones that shut down their airplane, um, so um, the Turks took credit for that pretty soon. They did, as they should, <laughs> uh, as, as they should. Uh, so, uh, yeah. The the other point on their response is, if they were to take aggressive military action in response to this in Ukraine, yeah, th- they can always, you know, they they have a big military. They didn't have a great military in two thousand eight, but they have a great military now. You know, they put a lot of money into it. So they could, they could yes, they can, you know, escalate, um, as we say. But we can escalate, too. I and mean, we escalate on sanctions. Um, we haven't used the heavy-duty sanctions uh, yet, uh, but we
1: could. My answer would be I couldn't care less. <laughs> uh, because we shouldn't let our decisions guide by when the Russians feel provocated, because then you can't move at all.
2: A terrific answer. We're we're running out of time here, but I want to get to the, the other major thing you mentioned in your speech, which is this question of reforms in Ukraine. And I think here in Washington, we sometimes hear a lot about Ukraine fatigue, is that we're always talking about Ukraine and reforms and financing and push, 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 and things feel like they're too slow, and we're not getting enough done. But you know, you, you gave us a very good list of a lot of the reforms that have been pushed through. And I've been working on Ukraine for 12 years, and I, you know, it's amazing what has been ha- what has happened in Ukraine over the last three and a half or four years. It's really made a, a very, you know, terrible term to use, I guess, in this situation, but a great leap forward. Uh, it's a work in progress. But how? I mean, how much really should the international community, U.S. EU, IMF, the entire international um, community, how much should we, can we expect from Ukraine on on reforms? Do you expect to see that pace of reforms slow as we come up upon a new presidential election in two years, or or will we actually conversely see it speed up?
1: We know that even in well-established democracies it's increasingly difficult to carry out uh, reforms uh, when you are approaching uh, elections. So you shouldn't be surprised if you see exactly the same uh, in in, uh, Ukraine. Uh, However, uh, personally, and that would also be my advice to President Poroshenko, um, I think if he makes uh, the fight against corruption his one of his major election pledges, then he would have a good chance, uh, both in the eyes of the international community to stand as a president that is really committed to reforms, and I think he would gain a lot of ground uh, in his own country because fight against corruption that can unite all Ukrainians. <coughs>
2: I, I think it's very correct. I mean, the, there's some terrific polling that shows that the two major concerns of Ukrainians are the war, the external war in Donbass and the internal war, which is corruption. Uh, so, so, Ambassador Taylor, I see you want to jump in,
3: I, I did, Hannah, A couple things. One is uh, the Prime Minister mentioned that this e-declaration um, system that the Ukrainians put in, and it's more—it's more transparent than any in Europe. Well, it's more transparent than here. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sandy and I, and many people in this room have filled out these forms every year, and it's nowhere near. It, a, it's not public. Uh, B, it's not in, anywhere near as detailed as, mm-hmm. as what. So the, the big deal in Ukraine was, oh, the journalist pointed to, oh, this lawmaker you know, has three Rolex watches yeah, yeah, yeah. and a flat. Uh, you know, where did he get the money? No, that's not the thing. The thing is, they published it. That is transparency. That is, a, and the what tripled or quadrupled uh, gas prices, uh, which is the single largest source of corruption in Ukraine, was low gas prices, um, going to oligarchs and going to Russians, um, going to Russian oligarchs. So, so I think. And the last thing I'll say, Hannah, is this business about Ukraine fatigue. We should retire that term. Um, we don't – it's self-indulgent for us to talk about Ukraine but, you know, it, This is important for the reasons that the Secretary General said. Um, Ukraine matters to us, it matters to Europe, it matters to the Ukrainians, um, and it matters in the end, as Sandy has said, to the Russians. Um, so this is important. We need to keep on this.
2: Well, Ambassador Vershbow, and, and this will be my last question before we turn, turn to the audience for just a few questions, how can we here in the U.S. when we're, we're in an atmosphere of America first. There's a bit of a feeling of wanting to pull back uh, from our international obligations. How do we make this case of the necessity to help keep, you know, keep helping Ukraine? How do we make that case to the American people? How do we make that to congressional members who are getting a lot of pressure from their constituents who say, why are you there? Why are we involved in this? What does this have anything to do with us? What is the quick, hard and dirty case for why we should continue to help this country?
4: That's probably not a quick case. But uh, I think we have to make the case that Ukraine is, in, ef- in effect, the front line of, of, of democracy right now in Europe. It, you know, the Ukrainians are not just fighting for themselves, but they're fighting for the values that we stand for and that they deserve our support. As I said before, the, you know, the whole international system that we've painstakingly helped build under American leadership since the end of World War II, and especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall, is very much uh, at risk if Ukraine is, uh, goes under and is uh, once again under Russian domination. So that may not be an argument that comes naturally to an America first president or administration, but I think the fact that they've adopted a a strategy, which is, uh, as I said, pretty coherent and put some serious diplomatic muscle behind it, and they're talking about creating some additional leverage, uh, shows that the administration gets it, however they may articulate it. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not as worried about Ukraine fatigue as I, as I was six months ago, uh, at least on the part of the administration. I think Congress has been very engaged, uh, as demonstrated by the sanctions bill. So uh, we just need to keep our eye on the ball. I mean, there's so many other crises and, and uh, internal challenges, but uh, we have to walk and chew gums at the same time. That's the price of, of leadership. Uh, and uh, it's America's role, uh, whether we like it or not. <laughs>
2: All right, so we'll turn very quickly to the audience uh, just for a couple of questions. I'm going to take two questions uh, at a time, and I'll ask you to please stand, state your name, your affiliation, and please ask a question that has a a question mark at the end. Uh, This gentleman right here.
3: Greg former Defense Department. As you know, Russia and the Soviet Union before it has a long history of using peacekeeping forces uh, by inserting their troops into it as a force for ill. In Georgia, as you know, prior to the invasion, the presence of the Russian forces in, their peacekeep- in the peacekeeping operations that had international sanctions were one of the things that Russia used to cause tremendous trouble in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, especially in South Ossetia, because I dealt with it at the Pentagon. What do you how do you ensure? That those peacekeeping forces actually are not actually guaranteeing a frozen conflict in a sense.
2: All right, and we'll take uh, one more question uh, here in, in the middle in the blue suit.
5: Thank you. Thank you for a v- very interesting uh, panel. My name is Kastutis. I'm from members of Lithuania. And yes, Lithuania did support uh, with their weapons Ukraine, but uh, it's more symbolic support. And it <clears throat> comes from understanding that, you know. Every country, according to United Nations, Charter, has a rule, has a right to self-defense. <clears throat> and my question would be, we well, heard this talk, a lot of talking about uh, provocative behavior. Whenever we kind of look behind our shoulders every time to Russia, is, is it provoking or not? We've got All the time we've got bigger problems, like South Ossetia, so- like Crimea, etc. Um, so it seems like uh, whenever we thinking about being provocative or not, is a self-defeating uh, behavior for the West. So what could be practical steps that not people in this room, but transatlantic community would be united uh, in their understanding about the dangers of the thinking and uh, talking about uh, uh, provoking Russia? Thank you. Well,
2: uh, start with Mr. Rasmussen.
5: Um, How can we
1: guarantee that peacekeepers will not just freeze uh, the conflict? Um, First of all, let me stress, you can only deploy a peacekeeping force on Ukrainian soil with Ukrainian consent. That's one thing. Uh, Secondly, uh, I think it's only a good idea, and I think it will only achieve uh, Ukrainian consent... Provided that we have a robust mandate and robust mandate would mean the right to control the eastern border and The right to protect the whole population and infrastructure in eastern Ukraine in that case it wouldn't just uh, freeze uh, the conflict it would lead to Ukraine regaining full sovereignty and territorial integrity Um Yeah, well, uh, the second uh, question, I don't know if I answer correctly, but I would say um, each and every country has a right to self-defense. It also has the right to decide its alliance affiliation itself. Same goes for Ukraine. Uh, In 1994, Ukraine gave up her nuclear weapons in exchange Ukraine received guarantees from three nuclear powers the US Russia and the UK guarantees of existing borders and territorial integrity and sovereignty Russia has violated that agreement I think the US has a political re- I mean a political obligation a moral responsibility actually to fulfill her commitments mm. to what is called the Budapest Memorandum. And that's also, I think, a reason why the U.S. should provide lethal uh, defensive weapons to Ukraine.
2: Ambassador Taylor. Uh,
1: if my – if our colleague Steve Pfeiffer were here,
3: who negotiated the Budapest Memorandum, <laughs> um, he would – he would point out that it wasn't quite a guarantee. The word is assurances. Now I, I agree with you. We do have a moral obligation. We should provide the weapons. We should support Ukraine. Um, uh, for for all, all the reasons that we've talked about, not the least the commitments that we made, the assurances we gave uh, the Ukrainians.
2: And the thing that uh, I believe Steve would also note is that Ukrainian and Russian only has one word for how we separate in English into assurance and guarantee. So it's, it's a very tricky uh, yeah. needle that we threaded there.
4: But Lavrov speaks very good English. He, he knows It's, true, <laughs> exactly it's true. what he's doing.
2: Do, do you want to add in something on this?
4: I just I would add on the first question, uh, of course, a robust mandate. We have to you know, be very careful in choosing which countries participate in this force. So you have a reliable mm-hmm. uh, lead nation and other nations. And it obviously can't be Russia. It can't be Ukraine. There have to be countries from outside of the immediate neighborhood, probably outside of NATO. Uh, but uh, the other thing is we have to make sure that we don't play the sanctions relief card too soon because to preserve leverage mm-hmm. on the Russians. Even if you get the perfect mandate and you have a strong, special representative of the Secretary General kind of in the field making sure it's implemented, the Russians could still renege or stage some provocation and, and freeze the whole process of implementation. So you need to maintain your sanctions leverage until you're absolutely sure they're going to live up to the agreement. and. Uh, I would agree on the – on the second point, Uh, you know, we have to do what's the right thing for countries that have seen their sovereignty flagrantly violated. Uh, I think the way to deal with Russia is not to kind of constantly self-censor ourselves and uh, refrain from action that we think might provoke them, but, you know, do what uh, we have to do, show strength, and try to negotiate reciprocal measures of restraint. Uh, This isn't quite the same as the old Cold War, but we need to draw some of the – tools from the Cold War playbook and try to use them again in terms of conventional arms reductions, stabilization measures, uh, beefing up the Vienna documents so the Russians can't, with such impunity, carry out these shocking, surprise, snap exercises. Uh, But we have to do this on a basis of reciprocity and get the Russians to show equal restraint and not uh, just exercise Western self-restraint.
2: All right, we've got time for two more questions here uh, rather quickly.
6: Uh, Ambassador
7: Chali here in the front. me one comment on internal politics in Ukraine, and thank you so much that you are, give us the additional direction what we should do. But I used to be in three – with three presidents, and I can say this uh, – I agree with you. What's happened now – thanks, Putin, who just – I um, don't thank him for killed our people, but thank, really, for pushing the Ukrainian nation for consolidation and doing reforms. But my comment on MNNA, so it's, from my point of view, it's not so ambition now. Thank you that now consider this. Uh, we proposed it three years ago. I was in presidential administration. I remember this, our proposal. Now we propose security agreement. So it doesn't matter what this will be. But for for sure, the level of cooperation between our countries, I mean, United States and Ukraine, is much higher now and deeper. So we need to fix it institutionally, this level of cooperation, just for that. And this message would be very good accepted in Ukraine, mostly. Not in Russia, not in US, but mostly in Ukrainians. Because Ukrainians ask me as ambassador every time, is it really we have perception in the United States that we fight not all, only for our country, but also for our common security? Because it's a kill 10,000, that's a big price. That's the reason why Ukrainians waiting for the firm position of the United States and such a decision. And uh, another important thing on lethal weapons, I'm not in a position as ambassador to just ask about officially about that, but I just give you a fact. The last two weeks Russians supply eight tanks. Tanks? It's not not German's tanks. So they supply a launch system. They supply yesterday's so called humanitarian convoy with fuel for tanks. They killed four soldiers two days ago. What's happening in the United States? What are you thinking about? and in Europe also. So Russia not ask anybody in the world, can they supply tanks? And you discuss this such a hypothetical thing. So it's just my, uh, not as ambassador, but just uh, as a human being that just understand what we will do with such type of threat in the future. And my question, uh, not about peacekeeping operation, not about all these tools, but what's the strategy of the United States and European alliance, NATO, in Europe, in this part of the world? I mean, Ukraine in the previous time, it was like a buffer zone, considered like a buffer zone between NATO, EU, and Russia leading system. Uh, Do you think this uh, buffer zone concept works now? Or will we have to propose something else?
6: Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, One more question uh, there in the the back, uh,
6: purple or dark tie. Um, Thank you. Uh, David Colton with the our Group. I have a, a, a two-part question for for the panel. The first is a structural one as opposed to personalities. Igor Jurgens, who co- was a policy coordinator for Medvedev, gave an interview explaining why many of the so-called Russian liberal and opposition people were so supportive of taking Crimea and Ukraine, and he phrased it that, as the Secretary General pointed out, it was intolerable to see the Baltics and Poland succeed as development states when Russia was unable to find a sustainable development model. And if that's the question, if that's the point, then uh, to Ambassador Rivershaw's point, a successful developing Ukraine as the glaciers of the Western Front to Russia, does it not then represent an existential threat to a, a broad society, not just Putin and Patrushev and, and, and that crowd, but the broad society structure that has not found a sustainable development model. Second question, uh, with respect to uh, the negotiations with NATO and Russia, uh, Russia has stood up the first tank army. They've got six divisions now. Based on Ukrainian experience, they've rejected the battalion tactical group approach and gone back. and It's maybe for theater, but they've got the, the shock armies reconstituted. We've got the battle groups in Poland with 800 American troops, and, and you're not saying that we have to match them force for force, but are there NATO measures that we could do that would take assurance to deterrence, such as the free flow of military force and logistics within NATO that would allow uh, us to present a more credible deterrent that wouldn't necessarily create a, a, a direct antagonistic clash? Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. So I'm going to ask that all three of you use uh, these last minutes both to answer these two questions as well as to make uh, any final statements that you might like. Uh, And then we'll conclude. And we'll start with you, Ambassador Verschbeil.
4: Okay. well, I would say on the buffer zone, I I think we're supposedly in the 21st century past the age of buffer zones and spheres of influence. And uh, so I would reject that altogether. And in the implication of the question that, uh, you know, Russia would see an existential threat from a successful market-oriented European-aligned uh, Ukraine, that they may see it that way, but that doesn't mean we're, we have to consign Ukraine to some kind of miserable backward existence in order to make Russians feel better. Uh, we have to uh, do, do right by Ukraine. Of course, they have to do the hard, hard work, the heavy lifting, particularly on anti-corruption. And I think... The election isn't so close that these things can be deferred till 2020. You know, the anti-corruption court you to see you know, the fine print, because that I think is going to be a very important event, and uh, get more done before the real election campaign uh, begins. Don't treat your election campaigns like we do in this country. as something that goes on for two or three years. Uh, but on the uh, the NATO question, uh, uh, we, we were already trying in NATO. I'm speaking now in my, as my former deputy secretary general uh, role. Uh, We think we've moved from reassurance to deterrence already with the uh, battle groups in the three Baltic states and Poland. Those aren't the the sum and total of our deterrence posture. It's all still premised on a a strong reinforcement capability, which is still a work in progress. We have the very high readiness joint task force agreed uh, three years ago. But there's a much larger uh, follow-on forces that need to not only be identified and trained, but with the logistical support, giving them the capacity to move to Europe and to the front, uh, much more quickly than is the case now. We have to do this military Schengen or some other way of overcoming border crossing difficulties. Uh, so there's a lot to be done. The command structure is being uh, upgraded uh, so that we can t- take a strong deterrence posture and make it even stronger. Uh, so maybe that—that's. Uh, I'll I'll stop there and let others just these issues just real quickly. Uh, then
3: uh, on the buffer zone question, and people have talked about how. Some Europeans talk about uh, Ukraine as a bridge uh, between East and West. Well, people walk on bridges. You know, this is not what Ukraine aspires to do. Uh, um, Ukraine is, if it wants to join Europe, it is it, part of Europe right now. If it wants to join the EU institutions, it's it's a sovereign country, as uh, as the Secretary General has said. On the question of uh, uh, Igor Juergens, uh with whom we've had some conversations. Um, Yes, it's an existential threat. Yeah, it is. And and uh, uh, and if the Russians are able to absorb Ukraine back in, they will they will become an empire. Um, if they're not allowed to, uh, if if they fail in trying to absorb Ukraine back in, then uh, then they will be they have the possibility of being a normal state, um, and that doesn't threaten their existence.
2: And the final word to you, Secretary.
1: Yeah. uh, On the buffer zone, I I fully agree with with Sandy. I think we should be a bit careful using the term buffer zone because it could easily lead to uh, misinterpretations. Uh, uh, A buffer zone has been proposed to indicate that Ukraine should be a neutral state between east and west and so on. I don't think we should engage in all that. I think we should insist on on moving towards a Europe, all free and at peace, uh, as the United States formulated the vision immediately after the end of the Cold War, instead of talking about uh, buffer zones. Um, uh, On um, uh, the deterrence, I would just say one thing, deterrence isn't dependent on the number of troops we have deployed to the east. The deterrent effect uh, is dependent on the fact that (coughs) the Russians know that if they were to invade uh, Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania, they will meet not only Estonian, Latvian or Lithuanian soldiers, they would also meet Americans. Germans, friends, etc. So that's why they do not dare even to think about attacking the, the, the three uh, countries. But of course, the real deterrence will be very much dependent on the free flow of troops so that we can reinforce the spearhead force we have deployed. And uh, it has been suggested by uh, the Colonel Uh, that we create a kind of military Schengen Mm -hmm. within NATO so that uh, troops can flow more freely uh, across borders. I'm strongly in favor of that. There are too much uh, bureaucracy connected uh, with uh, troop movements today, so I'm fully in favor of it. So my last comment will be that I I fully agree with Ambassador Taylor that we should uh, retire the term uh, Ukraine fatigue. Uh, because um, I sense when I uh, visit Western capitals sometimes a kind of uh, impatience, at least when it comes to reforms in Ukraine. But I can tell you, when I am in Kiev, I also sense a kind of, in particular, EU fatigue in Kiev, and mm-hmm. it is the wrong time. Uh, It's a wrong timing of fatigue. We should uh, realize how important Ukraine is from a strategic uh, point of view. And if you are to make America great again, it's important to see Ukraine as a strategic asset. Success in Ukraine would make America great.
2: And with that, I'll ask you to join me in thanking our distinguished panel. Thank you all for joining us today. And have a pleasant afternoon.